Amen. Thank you guys for leading us this morning as we get to sing to the Lord and about the Lord. If you're able to remain standing just a bit longer, please do so. Either way, turn to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 of Exodus 24 as we resume our study in the book of Exodus. It's on page 64. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one right in front of you there in the pew. Grab that, turn to page 64. Either way, Exodus chapter 24. These are God's words for us this morning. And here's what God says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nabab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but all the others shall not come near and the peoples shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and, the, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven uh, for clearness. And, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. They beheld God and ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses went up with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up uh, into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us to return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. 
Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. We count it as a treasure to have it. Our prayer is that you would be glorified now as we receive your word, that your, your spirit would now be at work in our hearts and our lives, that you would teach us, that you would transform us through your word by your spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now jumping back into our study in the book of Exodus. We slowed things way down as we considered uh, chapter 20. And, uh, and, and now we are jumping into chapter 24. And uh, my guess is that um, maybe uh, there's six more times that we'll spend in the book of Exodus. A lot of this we're going to collapse and, and kind of uh, push together. Uh, so that may take us through the end of May. Um, it, but it may spill over. We, it may take us sometime into June before we kind of uh, wrap things up. Um, but as we resume this morning uh, in this, um, in chapter 24 here, uh, we see, if you would, the ceremony of the covenant being ratified between God and Israel. I'm, I'm going to make a couple of observations, and then I'm going to see if I can tie those observations together with some things that we've previously looked at from the book of Exodus, and then try to, try to make a point um, and, and then from there, so I'm going to spend a little bit longer time on the introduction this morning just to kind of review us as to where we've been. And then from there, we'll consider two things from this passage. First thing I would do is I would just direct our eyes to verse 3 and verse 7. In verse 3, particularly um, at the very end of verse 3, where the people respond to um, what Moses had told the people. And what he told them, it says there in verse 3, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. I, I take that to mean all the words of the Lord are the ten words that we slowed down and looked at one at a time from Exodus chapter 20. And then at the tail end of chapter 20, all the way over down to chapter 23, there was what now is called the rules, which were the, the applicational case studies or the particular outworking of judgments uh, as to how people should function with each other in light of the 10 words that Moses gave or that God gave uh, through Moses. And, and so all of these words and all of these rules, in other words, what, what's contained in chapters 20 through 23, the, uh, Moses gives to the people, and their response is, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then it says he wrote these things down. And, and that becomes what we see in this chapter as the book of the covenant. Uh, that, that the content of what we now know as chapters 20 to 23 become the, this written down uh, record of the book of the covenant. And he reads the book of the covenant to the people. And then in verse uh, 7, uh, they repeat, but they add to it, but they repeat what they said in verse 3. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
and we will be obedient. Now, it's with those two things in mind, their their response in verse 3, their response in verse 7, that I think it requires us to go back to chapter 19, the precursor to the Ten Commandments and the the statutes that followed. And uh, in particular, um, as the Lord is um, uh, doing a kind of a prologue, a preliminary uh, um, uh, report, uh, announcing the covenant, in chapter 19 of Exodus, put your eyes on verse 8 of Exodus 19, and you'll see how I think you'll see how maybe some of chapter 19 is tied into some of chapter 24. Look at what they said in verse 8 of chapter 19. All the people answered together, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So, so chapter 19 is the, is the announcement of the covenant that God is going to make with Israel. Chapter 24, if you would, is the formal ratification of that covenant, that, that God is establishing a covenant with Israel. And that's how chapter 19 and chapter 24 are connected. They're, they're bookends to the book of the covenant which contains the word and the, the the words and the commandments that God gave to Israel as to how they should live but this is all being put together into a formal covenant relationship remember God doesn't do casual relationships God does covenant relationships. He he relates to his people. He um, engages in relationship with his people through covenant arrangements. A covenant is a formal relationship. The Lord announced that he's about to enter into that with Israel in chapter 19, and now he's actually entering into that with Israel in chapter 24. The the terms of the covenant, which is what really chapters 19 through 23 consist of, the terms of the covenant uh, lay out um, uh, the, 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 the various relationships that the, 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 the nature of the relationships that the various parties are, are, are obligating themselves to engage in. This is what God will be to Israel, and this is how Israel is to respond to the Lord in particular. Now, I say that to say, I've got to see, look at, look at one more thing from chapter 19, because in chapter 19, just prior to verse 8, we really see some of the covenant specifics uh, as to uh, uh, what the Lord has done and now what the Lord expects in terms of how Israel is to live in that covenant relationship. Look at verse 4 of Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on, the, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I redeemed you. I rescued you. I am the Lord God who has done that for you. I, I delivered you from Egyptian captivity, and if you would, I put you on my back and I carried you to myself. That, that, that the end game of that redemption, that rescue, was that now they would belong to the Lord. They would live in relationship with the God who rescued them, which is a wonderful thing, that God doesn't rescue a people and then keep them at arm's length. God rescues a people and brings them near to him. 
Now, you, if you noticed when I was reading in chapter 24 at the start, God said, now, don't let all the people come near to me. But that's going to be remedied in the chapters that follow. In chapters 25 through 31, the Lord is going to build a tabernacle. And, and it's through this tabernacle that the Lord will draw near to his people. But in the meantime, only Moses and some of the, some of the elders will be able to draw in closer proximity to the Lord. And yet the tabernacle will remedy that so that, that all of God's people living in covenant relationship with God will be able to draw near to him. That's his intention. He wants a people that will be his people. He wants a people who would say uh, that, that uh, he is our God. We are his people. And then he adds then the implication of he's rescued and redeemed them to be his people, to live in relationship with him. He adds then in the next two verses, five and six, still in chapter 19, what they are now commissioned to be about as his redeemed, rescued people. It says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for, uh, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel has been redeemed and they're about to be brought into a formal covenant relationship with the Lord. But a part of that formal covenant relationship that gets nailed down or ratified in chapter 24 is not only that they've been redeemed or rescued, but they've now been commissioned. That as his redeemed people brought into a uh, relationship with the one true God, their commission was that henceforth they were to display in how they lived, in how they lived in accordance with the laws and the statutes that are specified in chapters 20 to 23. They, they were to display the glory and the greatness of their God to all the nations. Israel was to represent the Lord to the world. The Lord has, always has, global designs. He never was parochial. He never was just going to hang out with Israel. But he was bringing Israel to himself to live in relationship with Israel. And as Israel saw his glory, they displayed his glory in and through how they would live. That is their commission. And while you and I live in a different covenant arrangement, we still live in covenant relationship with the same God. He brings us into relationship with himself and, and, and in so doing he shows us a bit of his glory and greatness and that you and I are his commissioned people to show the glory and greatness to God as well as how we live. 
So just think about the Ten Commandments that we walked ourselves through. Um, and, and think of how sometimes you and I will, will get snarky and sour when we see the world around us. They ain't living according to the Ten Commandments. And, and, and we, we go sideways with this. And, and, we, and we, we, get, we get angry about this. And, and certainly we should be burdened and concerned about that. But you understand the first task of the Ten Commandments is not first and foremost simply that the world ought to start acting that way. But the, the relationship is that now we who name the name of Jesus we ought to be the people who live in the goodness of these non-burdensome, delightful orders. We ought to be the people who display what a delightful, wonderful thing marriage is. We shouldn't just rant and rave because people ain't honoring marriage. We should be the people who display to the world, this was God's ideal. It's a wonderful ideal. Come into the delight of his arrangements. We rant and rave about people who don't respect life, and, and certainly that, that has grave consequences in the culture that we live in, and yet we should be the people who model before the world, this is, what, how, this is how wonderful it is that our Father gave us instructions on how to revere and respect life. We rant and rave because our culture doesn't have hard workers anymore. Uh, we are, the, we are the, be the people who display that it is far better to refrain from being a thief and instead know a thing or two about how to work hard with our own hands to produce and to share. We're to be the people of God who display the greatness and glory of God through our obedience that we would show the world this is what love and justice consists of in a culture. And may we be that subculture of people to display what a wonderful God we belong to. So out of that then, there's two quick things I want to touch on out of chapter 24. Their commission is to display the greatness and the glory of God by how they live. And the, the things I want to touch on is, first of all, they have been... Now, what we'll see in chapter 24, they will be consecrated for that commission, and they will live in communion with God in order to carry out that commission. Verse 4, back in chapter 24, um, uh, after the people say, we will, do, we will do all that the Lord has spoken... What, the, what Moses does, he, he, he now builds an altar. The, the tabernacle's not here yet. We'll get there, Lord willing, next week. We'll at least see the plans laid out for how they're to build that. Uh, but whether there's a tabernacle or not, there's a need to meet with God. And the need to meet with God is always through an altar. And so an altar is built. Moses builds an altar. Um, and, and, and we're told there in verse 5 uh, that the people of Israel offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. So the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7, specified the nuances and the differences in, in that. And yet what I, what I want us to, to, to notice, though, is um, uh, before those offerings were burnt up or offered to the people as a part of the meal, uh, 
the blood was drained from those offerings. And then the, did, you, did you notice then uh, that the, the blood in verse 6, I believe, the blood is split in half. He says there in verse 6, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. So set it over here for now. And he took the other half of the blood, uh, and uh, it says he threw it on the altar. I would suggest to you that what the blood on the altar um, represents is the forgiveness of their sins that they are receiving through the death of a sacrifice, of a substitutionary sacrifice, through a propitiation. But I preached that sermon last week, so we gotta, we got to move on. Um, in other words, uh, that from the get-go, the basis of this covenant that God is making with his people is that they are a people who are set apart unto the Lord. They, they now belong to the Lord. And the, the reason that they could safely belong to the Lord is that justice has been served on their behalf because of their sins. Resulting in their sins being pardoned, they are now a forgiven people through the shed blood of a substitute. But, but, but the very justice of God has been satisfied. The very wrath of God toward them because of their sin has been turned aside. And the result now is that they are the recipients of God's mercy. They now belong to God. They were once a people who had no mercy, but now they have the mercy of God. They were once a people who did not belong to God, but now they belong to God. They've been set apart to belong to God. And the, and the half of the blood that was put on the altar represents that the covenant is being ratified by shed blood. And the first uh, amount of the shed blood is to provide forgiveness and to establish relationship with God. But what do you do with the second half of the blood? Well, verse 7, remember this is where they said then uh, a second time here in chapter 24, um, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now, it is at that moment then that Moses then gets out the, 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 the basins with the other half of the blood in verse 8. And it says, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. I'll try not to get gory, but that just sounds gory. Uh, I mean, you, you, many of you got dressed up for church this morning. But I digress. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Remember, they just had the book of the covenant that just, they just read. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And, and, and now the Lord is ratifying that through covering them with blood. The Lord has, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, throughout the Old Testament, blood being placed on the altar to establish the forgiveness of sins and to um, abate the wrath of God is a pretty common usage of blood. It's not as common in the Old Testament for the blood, some of it, to actually be thrown 
uh, placed on the people. That's kind of unique. It's rare. In fact, the best I could tell, I could only find two other episodes in the Old Testament where the blood was used that way. The first episode will come later in chapter 29 of Exodus in which the, the, the blood will be placed upon the Levitical priests, consecrating them to be priests in Israel. And, and the imagery there is, hang with me, th- that they will no longer be common people. They will now be set apart unto the Lord to be his special holy people. So they're going from common to holy by virtue of blood being placed upon them. The only other episode that I can find is in Leviticus 14, where the lepers are are, uh, suffering from leprosy, and as a part of um, their uh, uh, process to become clean, um, that, that the blood of the sacrifices is placed or thrown upon them. And so with those two episodes, what you see is that the blood in both cases is setting apart or consecrating the people for a particular agenda. It's taking that which is common and making it holy, as in the priests. It's taking that which is unclean and it is making it clean as that which the lepers, and in the case of the lepers. And, and all throughout the book of Leviticus, you, you have that interplay that, that, that God is distinguishing what is common and what is holy, what is unclean and what is clean. And, and, and yet in each case, what remedies the, the problem, whether it's commonness or uncleanness, what remedies the problem is blood is being placed upon them, the blood of the sacrifices. Uh, what are we to do with that? How does that work for us? Well, through the shed blood of Jesus, we certainly have, in the first case, we have pardon and forgiveness. The, the, the justice of God is satisfied toward us because of the shed blood of Jesus. But, but I think the second application of blood applies to us as well in this sense. The same blood that pardons us of our sins is the same blood that now enables or empowers us to live obediently to the terms of the covenant that we live in with God. Maybe put it this way. The bumper sticker, you know, the guy that cuts you off on the highway, you know, in addition to the Joy FM bumper sticker, there's also another one that says, um, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And um, which justifies why he can cut you off, I suppose. But anyway, um, uh, but, and I, I know you can only put so much reality on the back of a bumper sticker, which is probably why it's problematic to have bumper stickers. I'm not sure, because you're, you're only going to tell a half of a story. But, but, but anyway, is that true? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, it certainly is true that Christians are, in terms of our practical outworking of lives, we're far from perfect. But what is not true, Christians are not just forgiven. We are more than forgiven. The shed blood of Jesus that pardons us from all of our sins. I'm not trying to take that away from us. 
We need to rejoice in that. But what I'm saying is that that's one of the things that the shed blood of Jesus provides for us. It provides a full, final, and forever pardon. But this, the, the other thing that this passage is showing us is that when we live in covenant relationship with God, he not only cleanses us from all of our sins, but he now empowers us by the, by the covering of that same blood uh, uh, to, to live obediently to the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness has been purchased in the blood of Jesus, and empowerment to live differently has been purchased through the blood of Jesus. Our obedience does not provide us salvation. And yet, where I think we need to grow in our understanding is nonetheless when God mercifully, graciously, lovingly provides us salvation through faith in the finished work of Jesus, then that salvation that he graciously provides produces obedience. I'm not Lord. And so I don't get to make the final call here, but what our scriptures teach us is that while our works do not earn us salvation, those who possess salvation evidence that through our works. Many people, particularly in North America, where it's easy to do so, they'll do a wink and a nod, a drive-by wave at Jesus and think that they eternally belong to him. And yet, I fear, at least if we read hard into our scriptures, they know not the Lord Jesus Christ. They know a thing or two about him, but they've never entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a flood of grace enables them to rise up by entrusting themselves to Jesus and following him in a life that begins incrementally, progressively, a little bit at a time, displaying a life of obedience to the Lord. I got to move on. The second thing that I want to touch on is really in the subsequent verses of verse 24, and I, chapter 24, and I won't get through all of this, uh, but they've been commissioned um, by being consecrated through the blood of Jesus, and they're being commissioned through communion with their God. I don't mean communion like what we just did here, um, uh, and, and yet what we did here we often call, or we can call communion, because what we do here is more than just remember. We are also fellowshipping with the Lord through this table. And so as the blood is being placed on the altar, as the blood is being thrown on the people, that enables them to enter into a new uh, aspect of relationship with God. That there's no longer a, uh, just a casual acquaintance with God, but there's now a real close bond. And that bond has been sealed by shed blood. Look at what he says about this outworking of new relationship in verse 10, verse 11. And they saw the God of Israel. And then, and then at, at toward the end of verse 11, it says, and they beheld God and ate and drank. 
which is probably related to the fellowship offering that was mentioned earlier. That's really part of what a fellowship offering does. Only part of the animal is sacrificed. The other part is, is preserved, and, the, and you enjoy a covenant meal there in fellowship with, the God, with God there. In other words, what, what is occurring here in these verses is that Moses and the elders, they, they are living in communion with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord. They are, they are able to safely come into his presence why are they able to safely come into his presence? Because blood has been shed, thrown at the altar, and thrown on them. So now they can see God and live to tell about it. I mean, that's what, that's what the Lord himself will, will say um, in Exodus 33, when Moses is looking to even catch a greater glimpse and degree of God, the Lord reminds him, no one can see God and live. And yet here it says, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, I would suggest to you, how, how do we reconcile that? No one can see God and live, and, and yet they saw God and they lived to tell about it. Well, in part because blood has been shed to make that doable. But the, the, I think the other thing that's being explained to us here in this passage is um, I think the Exodus 33 passage is saying no one could see God in the totality of his being. No, no, you and I don't have the capabilities to take all of that in and not implode. But, but the Lord can reveal aspects or glimpses of himself. And I think that's what's being said in verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 again. And they saw the God of Israel. And, and then here's, I think, I think what it says next is it explains, well, in what way did they see the God of Israel? And, and it, it explains it like this. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire, like the very heaven for clearness. In some sense, what they saw was God's feet and the pathway underneath God's feet. Now, hang with me. The scriptures tell us that God is a spirit. He is not limited uh, with a body like you and I are. And of course, the older we get, the more we realize that our bodies are a limitation. You know, but, but God doesn't have that sort of limitation. Um, uh, it, 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 God is a spirit, and, and yet sometimes the scriptures, in order to help us comprehend aspects of God, it, it, it uses language um, in a metaphorical sense, to speak of God's hand or God's eyes or um, God's face or God's feet, if you would, to, to help um, um, us to unpack some feature or some facet that we're comprehending uh, about God. In other words, they're not getting a full look. They're not looking up and catching the whole thing. They, they are basically barely able to raise their eyes, and all that they're able to see, if you would, metaphorically, is the feet of God and the pure pathway that, that those feet are walking on. Or, or how he explains it in verse 11, it says, and they beheld God. 
and they ate and drank. The, the notion of beheld God was, is really more not so much of a, of a visual sight, uh, but a, a focus, an, a, a, an attentive, attentive. They, they were attentive. I don't know if I can get all that word out or not. They, they were focused and attentive upon the Lord. Their minds were fixed upon the Lord. Much like we're told in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. Seek the things that are above. In other words, we're, we're to have a certain attentiveness to the things of God and to the, and to the God of these things. And here in, in this case, remember in the context of they said we will be obedient. Well, part of what, how they can be obedient is that they can, they can know Notice where God is walking, the very direction of God's life, and they can follow Him. If they keep their attention, if they keep their focus on the direction that God is walking in, then they will be able to fulfill that aspect of living obediently to doing all that the Lord has has spoken and yet the fuller sense is that they, as they beheld God, they ate and drank. They, they, they were living in a sense of, of, of intimate friendship with God, which is an amazing thing that the creator, the infinite, eternal creator of all the universe would stoop down and collect people like us into his presence and said, I'll be your friend. Again, that's, that's a lot of shed blood. That, that makes such a, a sweet relationship doable. But even as we fast forward into the New Testament that, that gives the groundwork of the new covenant, it's the same God, but a different covenant, but it's, it's the same sense of outcome. The writer of Hebrews tells us, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us draw near where, to who? Let us draw near to God. Let us live in communion and fellowship with God. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That we are a cleansed people, that, that blood has been placed on the altar that, and blood has been placed on us. Peter would remind us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we've, we, we've been brought into relationship with God through the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying, setting apart work of the Spirit, and then it says through the, the blood, the, the sprinkled blood of Jesus unto obedience that the very sprinkled blood of Jesus becomes the basis for not only our pardon, but for our obedience to the Lord. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and cause ourselves to be obedient. No, the shed blood of Jesus fits us, qualifies us, prepares us, readies us, empowers us to begin to be a people who seek to live obediently to the Lord. We are brought into relationship with God. Peter would say elsewhere in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Is that not the same imagery that we've seen in Exodus 19 and 24? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The shed blood of Jesus brings us into fellowship with God. The shed blood of Jesus creates in us a people with a capability to strive for obedience that we as Israel failed in the Old Testament, that we now might be that same kind of people who display and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. I'll close with this. The psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 28, says this, but it was good for me to draw near to God. Just like Israel is now going to be drawing near to God. Here in chapter 24, later and subsequently in the construction and building of the tabernacle, it is good for you and I through the blood of Jesus to draw near to God. He says, I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. We are a commissioned people, not unlike the people of Israel, but now in a way that's even sweeter and superior. It wasn't the blood of goats and bulls that caused us to be a people of God, that enabled us to be an obedient people unto God. It is now the priceless, precious, unblemished blood of the lamb that qualifies us to live in relationship with God and to live out that relationship with God in a life that pursues obedience. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you enter into covenant with your people to not only cause us to live in relationship, in fellowship with you, but also that we might be a people who, who are able to perform a direction of obedience in our lives. Father, may we honor you this week as we're mindful of you, as we seek to live in relationship with you, as we seek to show our relationship with you through the life that we do live. Help us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.